This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Malachi 3, 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Well, today we are wrapping up our study of Jesus' Bible. The Old Testament. And uh, we're going to conclude this magnificent journey by looking at the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Um, Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets like Malachi were the theological bouncers of the day. Uh, They were the ones who persistently called God's people back to God's vision of having a community of people who walked with him in faith and obedience, loving one another. So God sent prophets to call out God's people, to rebuke them, to correct them, to get them back on track when they had gone off the rails. And, uh, and Malachi is one of those prophets. Now Malachi itself is a bit of a depressing book because he has, God has charge after charge after charge that he levels against his people. Their community at this time is far from demonstrating the spiritual, moral, and relational beauty that God had intended. Malachi lists off several problems. Israel has become thoughtless and careless in their worship of God. Instead of bringing the best animals for sacrifice, they were bringing the sick and diseased animals for sacrifice and keeping the best for themselves. They went through the religious motions, but their minds always seemed to be preoccupied with other things. Israel's leaders had become uh, theologically imprecise, maybe even a bit lazy, and as a result drifted into false teaching. Divorce had become rampant within this community, and Malachi treats divorce as a societal injustice. He knows, God knows, what we have discovered in some pockets of our society today, that divorce has ripple effects into the community, and it's not just something that's contained within the family unit. There has been economic abuse within their ranks, people defrauding one another, 
and they failed to take proper care of those on the margins of society. There's one other black mark against God's people in the book of Malachi, and that is they have been robbing him by being stingy with their giving. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these verses, make some observations, and I'm going to offer three reflections on the topic that the text is talking about today. So let's look at it. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Now, the fact that God is an unchanging God is a really good thing for Israel in this moment, even though they had violated and profaned the covenant that God made with them, God had not violated or profaned the promises he made to them. So even though these people are living in a state of chronic rebellion, they hadn't exhausted God's grace. They had not exhausted God's love towards them. Why? Because God's very nature never changes. And when he established this covenant with Israel, he declared who he he is to them. He said he is a gracious God. He is compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So when you have a God who makes the kind of promises he makes, you simultaneously, desperately want a God who does not change. Because a God who does not change stamps guaranteed on his promises. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Return to me is a formal expression of repentance. Whenever you see that in the Bible, return to me or return, you can think repentance. It's an about face. It's a complete change in direction. It's a shift in loyalty. It's a reorientation back to God. And the call to repent is one of the most frequent commands in the Old Testament prophets, as you can imagine, since they were the theological bouncers of the day. But God doesn't just call them to repent. Notice what it says. He also says, if they repent, I will return to you. Does this mean God had left them? Yes. It means precisely that. Divine rejection is one of the covenant curses in the Mosaic law. This is what verse 9 actually alludes to when he says that Israel's under a curse. And this curse is in the form of divine rejection. There's Old Testament precedent for this. I'm not gonna go into those passages, but you can see Deuteronomy 31 if you wanna dive into that a little bit further. Now, we looked at how this divine rejection, how this plays out when we studied the book of Joel. Does God discipline his people? That was the the topic that we looked at from the book of Joel. The New Testament teaches that God does sanction misery into his people's lives in the form of discipline in order to deal with our sin. We looked at that at that time. It's in order to train us in righteousness. Maybe the the clearest way to think about this is to think about a parent's relationship to a child. You provide disciplinary instruction to your kids as a parent. Now, when you do that, you don't stop loving them. I don't abandon my commitment to my children to be their father when I discipline them. I don't turn towards them in disgust. Regardless of what your kids may do, you don't stop loving them. But what happens in those moments? (laughs) Their experience of your love is of a very different nature in disciplinary moments. Yes? (laughs) It's less pleasant. And God is saying to Israel, when you reorient yourselves back to me, you will once again experience the great blessing of having sweet fellowship with me. 
Or in the words of Deuteronomy 31, I will once again turn my face toward you. I will once again turn my face toward you. Now over the years, uh, one of the most common pastoral counseling questions I've been asked is, what do I do when I feel spiritually dry? What do I do when God seems distant from me? Now, I have a whole list of of things that I'll work through with them, but but one of the items on that list is, is this. Have you confessed all known sin to God and asked for forgiveness and turned from that sin? Have you confessed all known sin to God, asked for forgiveness and turned from that sin? What the text is teaching us, and it's in countless places throughout God's word, is that carrying around unconfessed sin ensures that God turns his face from us. And God is saying to his people, if you repent, if you reorient yourselves back to me, you'll see my face again. You'll have sweet fellowship with me once again. Second half of verse eight, but you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? You rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. So Israel sense asks in response, so how do we repent? How do we return to you? How, what does that look like? How are we supposed to do this? And God answers their question. And his answer is striking. His answer is by tithing. Giving back to God 10% of everything God had given them. God's answer to their question about how they can demonstrate repentance and reorient themselves back to God comes in the form of a major symptomatic issue, tithing. Now in the context of the book, tithing isn't the only thing they needed to correct, but it does serve as a prime example of what returning to the Lord would entail. Now, the seriousness of the lack of tithing, the Lord drives home through this graphic and repetitious use of the word rob. And we're going to look at that more closely in a minute. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So God takes tithing so seriously, he invites his people to test him in this. Did you see that in the, in the text? Now this is going to raise a question, because some of you are going to think back to Luke 4 when Jesus was in the wilderness, and the devil comes up to him and starts testing him and Jesus says to the devil do not put the Lord your God to the test so what's the deal what's going on here there are three major differences between the testing that took place with Jesus in Luke 4 and the testing that's happening here in Malachi the first difference is the origin of the test in Luke 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness who initiates the test the devil does In Malachi, who initiates the test? God does. That's your first clue. This is probably very different. It's very different. 
God, in a sense, is saying, I invite you to test me and my faithfulness to you in this area of tithing. God's inviting the test. Test me in this. Test me in this. The second reason there's a, there's a difference between the two is that in Malachi, the test surrounds obedience to a repetitive command in the scriptures. Tithing, by this time, tithing's been around for centuries within Israel's history. The, the command to tithe is replete. Um, in effect, God is saying, look, I've commanded you to tithe repeatedly. Why don't you test me and see for yourself if what I've commanded you to do is good for you? The test in the wilderness with Jesus and the serpent is not some sort of test about Jesus' obedience to some revealed truth in God's word. In fact, it's nowhere to be found. That's a major difference between the two. The third reason the test in Malachi is different than the test in Luke 4 is this. The, the command to test the Lord is a corporate action, not an individual action. Virtually all Old Testament promises of abundance function this way. No person, no family can assume from from Malachi, the oracle in Malachi, that they will get rich from tithing. However, the nation as a whole can expect to have more than enough food to go around if it will practice as a nation across the board tithing. And we'll get to the parallel of that, what it looks like today in just a minute. So here's what I want to do. I want to drill down into three ideas from this text. Three ideas. We're going to look at the evil of stinginess, why we're stingy, and what to do about it. The evil of stinginess, why we're stingy, and what to do about it. Okay? First, the evil of stinginess. God says not tithing is tantamount to robbing him. Hebrew experts have puzzled over this for years. The word rob is an unusual word. It means to oppress, to pillage, to plunder. It's a word that you would use to describe a wealthy, powerful country coming in and despoiling, pillaging, and raping a weaker, poorer country. It's a very violent word. And people have puzzled over this word because it seems out of place that God would say, you're doing that to me. How are we doing that to you, God? And God answers the question. I'm talking about your lack of generosity. I'm talking about your lack of generosity with your money. I'm talking about the fact that you hold on to too much of it, you spend too much on yourself, and you don't give enough away. So God's using a very graphic word to get across the severity of the evil of stinginess. To drive this point home and why it is so evil, let me read from 1 Chronicles 29. The context is David was raising funds to build the temple. The people responded by giving lavishly. And then David says this, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We've given you only what comes from your hand. Now, someone's going to think, well, yeah, but I worked hard for what I have. I worked hard for what I have. But you've worked very hard for what you have with what? With abilities opportunities, 
circumstances, health, and various other things that God provided. You may say, well, I've worked very hard. I am what I am because I worked hard. But listen, if God had decided that you would be born on a mountain in Mongolia in the 11th century, I don't think you'd be doing so well. No matter how hard you worked. You say, it's all a matter of my work. No, no, no. It's a matter of your circumstances. It's a matter of your abilities. It's a matter of your opportunities. And God gave those to you. And if you have more than someone else, it's because God gave you more abilities and opportunities and more circumstances. And so everything is as David has said it to be. Everything is a gift. And God, when he gives something to us, he does not give up ownership of it. When he gives something to us, he does not give up ownership of it. Everything you have, God is the ultimate owner of. Think about it this way. You all, we all together, we relate to money the way a money manager relates to the wealth of investors. Okay? You relate to money the way a money manager relates to the wealth of investors. You relate to money not as an owner, but a broker, a steward. If you're a money manager and uh, you see the funds grow and your clients are giving you more money to manage for them, you get excited. Why? Because you're going to eat the fruit of that. But you don't have the slightest idea, (laughs) I hope, you don't have the slightest idea that all that money is yours, that you can do anything you want with it. There's an accountability, right? If you're a money manager, here's what your goal is for your career. You have to invest this money in line with the directions of, the purposes of, the values of the investors. And if you don't do that, it's called fraud. God is the great creator investor. You're his money manager. Stinginess is evil precisely because it is cosmic fraud. Second, why we're stingy. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. If you're highlighting or underlining, taking notes, circle, underline, highlight my, 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 my house. All this is wrapped up in the temple. The people would bring their tithe to the temple. It would be stored in the storehouse inside the temple. Now, what does it mean to give to the temple? We have to get underneath this. If Malachi is saying, bring your 10% to the storehouse of the temple, how does that translate for us? What does that mean for us? How can we do the same thing? Now, over the years, I've heard preachers say something like, well, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, you'd bring your tithe, your 10% to the temple. uh, But now you must give your whole tithe, your 10% to Alliance Bible Church because we're the temple now. I don't believe that. Okay, the temple was not the local church. You didn't have little temples on every corner. Most people didn't go to the temple because it was too far away. But the temple was this. It was the institutional seat of the service of God for the entire society. When you gave your money to the temple, it supported the spiritual community of the entire country. It supported the poor in the entire culture. Okay? Think about that now. Today... Today, there is no one church, there is no one organization, there is no one charity in your life that's parallel to that. There isn't. 
Today, there's no one church, there's no one organization you can give to that would provide that kind of comprehensive help to the entire human community. So there isn't anything like a temple today. So to give your entire tithe to the temple means to give all you should be giving to church and charity, but there isn't one source for you to do that anymore. So if you go to Alliance Bible Church, you do not have to give your entire tithe or whatever you give to Alliance Bible Church. You give to Alliance Bible Church and other charities and ministries. Now someone's gonna say, oh my goodness, you're, you're af- aren't you afraid that you're eroding the financial support of the local church? No, absolutely not. I'll tell you why. The problem in this country, the problem in the developed world at large is not that people don't give enough money to their local church. The problem is they don't give in biblical proportions out of biblical joy. If people were giving in biblical proportions, it would float all the boats. Capiche? If people were giving in biblical proportions, it would float all the boats. Alliance Bible Church would have all it could handle. The other charities and ministries would have all they could handle. Now what, now what is this business about bringing the tithe into the storehouse? The storehouse, this word can be translated as treasury. So it held the food that people tithed. People would tithe their crops. But 1 Kings 7 also tells us that, that people would tithe silver and gold and other valuables. And all of it was contained in God's house. God says, bring it to my house. Let me put a ribbon around this. If you find it's very difficult to give money away, it's really difficult to write those checks. It's just difficult. But you find it's so incredibly easy to spend money on clothes It's like falling off a log. You have to watch yourself, it's so effortless. If that's you, your wardrobe is your real temple. It's the real treasury of your real temple. Because what you're doing, no matter what you say you believe, what you're doing is that you're looking to personal appearance and how people perceive you physically to get that sense of desirability, acceptability, lovability, rather than looking to the love of God. If you find it difficult to give away your money, but easy to put it into a beautiful new home or a new car, that's your real temple. Because what you're really doing is saying, look what I can live in, look what I can drive. I like what it says about me. I like what it says to others about me. You're looking to those things to make you feel important, significant, rather than looking to the knowledge of God. Or there are a lot of you who look at people spending money on new homes and new cars and new clothes and you sneer at them, but you sock it all away in savings. And you're very proud, you live in a small apartment, you drive old cars, 
but you are as much under the power of money. If you find it's very hard to give away money, but very easy to save it, then your bank is your real temple. Rather than God, you're looking to that to give you control in a very chaotic world. Look up here. It is effortless to spend money on that which is your God. It is effortless to spend money on that which is your real God. Money just flows into the treasury of your real temple. Anything that is easy to spend money on is your real savior. Anything that's easy to spend money on is your real Lord, it's your real source of hope, it's your real meaning, it's your real happiness, it's your real significance, it's your real security, no matter what you say you believe. There's a phrase in the English language, the almighty dollar. It's a way of saying that some people worship money, but that's not really true. People don't really worship money, but money, (laughs) money will always show you what you do worship. It will always show you what you do worship. The person who's socking away all this money into savings while sneering at people who, who live in lavish homes or wear lavish cars or uh, drive lavish cars or wear, wear lavish clothes is investing his or her money in a security idol. For some people, money serves an approval idol. For some, money serves a control idol. The point is that if, if you find it much easier to spend money on anything rather than giving it away to charity and ministry, you're enslaved to an idol. Your money is in a treasury. It's in a temple, but it's not God's. That's why money has the power of you that it does. That's why we're stingy. I mean, let's think about this. Does money, can money really make you secure? Professor Addison Leach once recounted a story that helpfully illustrates this point. (laughs) There were two, uh, two gals in college where he was teaching, very accomplished gals, um, very bright, smart, um, and uh, their, both of their parents wanted them to go on to get master's degrees, and they wanted them to go on and get careers. They became Christians in college, <laughs> and they decided instead that they wanted to become missionaries, and both sets of parents had an absolute fit over it. And one of the parents called up Dr. Leach, thinking that Dr. Leach was one of the reasons that the girls decided that they were going to go live wildly off in the blue being missionaries rather than pursuing education and careers. And so one of the moms calls up Dr. Leach and says, listen, <laughs> we wanted our daughter to go to school, get, get a master's degree, find a career, get something in the bank so she could have some security. And Dr. Leach answered, he said, let me remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth. And we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles per hour. And even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all gonna die. Under every single one of us, a trap door is gonna open and we're all gonna fall off the ball of rock. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. And maybe we can get a master's degree to get some security. Point made. 
The biggest savings account in the world can't stop cancer. Can't stop traffic accidents. Can't stop broken hearts, broken minds. That's why we're stingy. So what do we do about it? There's something really incredible about the structure of Malachi. Chapter one, verses two to five, functions as an umbrella over the whole book. It's the thesis statement for Malachi. Chapter one, verses two to five. So as Malachi ticks off one offense Israel has committed after another throughout the book, including their financial stinginess, we're meant to go back and read chapter one, verses two to five in light of that. Actually, we're meant to read chapter one, verses two to five as the solution to the problems that Israel's created. So what do we read there? This is what we read there. First words out of God's mouth in the book of Malachi. I have loved you. (laughs) That's the first word. I've loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now the bottom line of this is that God's love is meant to be the fuel for their generosity. You will give to the degree you've been impacted by God's love for you. I would go farther and say, if you wanna know to what extent God's love has captured you, look at your giving. Now, what is this business about Jacob and Esau? Jacob had an alias. He was known by another name, class. That name was Israel. So Israel starts as a single human being, Jacob. Now, what does it mean when God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated? Well, God chose to bless Jacob in a special way. In a way, he did not bless Esau. Jesus comes through the family line of Jacob, the Messiah, the the hero of the human story, comes through Jacob's line. God's people are preserved through Jacob's line. God made Jacob the object of his electing love, but not because Jacob had merited it. Far from it. God chose to love Jacob in a special way because God chose to love Jacob in a special way. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells the nation of Israel that he has set his unique affection on them, not because they're more numerous than the other nations. The reasoning that God gives his people in Deuteronomy 7 for why he loves them is that because he chose to love them. God is saying, I love you because I love you. In other words, his love for them is not conditioned on anything. And that is the solution to Israel's stinginess. It's the solution to our stinginess. Now, how does that free us to be radically generous? Think about this. We hang on to money because we believe it can provide us with security. God is speaking into that lie 
And he's saying, look, my special electing love of you is the only security you'll ever need. Every other threat out there can get to you. But not the threats my love protects you from. We hang on to money because we believe it can provide us with approval from others. Prestige, held in high regard. But God speaks to that lie and says, look, I'm the creator of the universe. And I brought you into my family. What more do you need? So and so over here thinks you're great because you've got X number of dollars in the bank. Who are they? You have my approval through the work of my son Jesus. What more do you need? We hang on to money because we believe it can provide us with comfort. But God speaks into that lie. He says, no, no, no. My special electing love of you is the greatest single source of comfort that you'll ever find. See, when our, when our hearts are electrified by God's undeserved, unique love for us, that is the catalyst to unleash the floodgates of radical generosity. Let me try to anchor this for you as we close. One of my theological pet peeves are Christian slogans. Common Christian sayings. And look, if, this is, if I pick at one that you've really loved... I love you. (laughs) One one such saying is this. God loves everybody the same. When people hear that, it sounds so beautiful. That we're tempted to respond with a hearty amen. Now, (laughs) last week... I talked about mindlessness. I talked about how mindlessness leads to idolatry. In fact, mindlessness is a characteristic of idolatry. This is where mindlessness gets us into trouble. Does God love everybody the same? Slow down and think. We've got to think. We've got to open the book on that one. We've got to read the book. Are we sure? Now, in one sense, he does. Matthew 5 God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on good people and evil people. God hardwired our planet to be fruitful. And both good and evil people have prospered from that. In that sense, God loves everybody the same. But there's a sense in which God does not love everybody the same. In Ephesians 5, Paul is instructing husbands how to love their wives. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband is to love his wife just like Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what does it mean when Paul says Christ gave himself up? Gave himself up is referring to what? Death, the cross, his self-sacrifice. That's how a husband's supposed to love his wife. But according to Paul, for whom did Jesus do this? For whom did Jesus die? The church. Not everybody, the church. Let me land this plane. Question. Should a husband's love for his wife be different than his love for other women? I asked my wife that question. Mind you, she's a black belt in karate. When I woke up 10 minutes later, I gave her the correct answer. 
Yes. A husband's love for his wife is supposed to be more intimate than his love for other women. Why? It's not because marriage is some social construct. It's supposed to be that way because that's how Jesus relates to the church. Marriage is given its meaning in the gospel. It's not the other way around. So if you're a Christian today, a true believer, listen to this, this is what's special about this. If you're a Christian today, if you're a true believer, Jesus relates to you the same way a husband relates to his wife. His love for you is not love in general. It's deep, it's intimate, it's special, it's unique, and not everybody's the beneficiary of Jesus' love like that. So listen, I love that we have communion after the sermon today, because as we come to this table, this table ought to be a reminder to you of how unique, intimate, and special Jesus' love for you is. His love for you is not generic. Just as a husband's love for his wife is unmatched, unrivaled, so is Jesus' love for you, Christian. That is the key to unlocking the floodgates of radical generosity. Let's pray and we'll come to the table. Lord Jesus, impress on our hearts the depths of your love for us. It cannot be conceived in the mind alone. We need you to help us grasp the enormity of your affection for your people and as that happens, may the effects of it be seen in a thousand ways, including our generosity. We respond to what we've heard now by participating in this table. We need tangible ways to be able to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is your love for us. So Jesus, I pray that that would happen in these moments together around this table. We ask these things, we pray for these things for the glory of your name. And we pray for the good of your people. In your name, amen.